Hello and welcome to Aghast at the Past 1892, Thursday, February 25th. A couple of really interesting stories today, and one takes a little bit of time to tell. Um, But first, before we get there, let's start with some national headlines. The front page of the New York Times wrote an article accusing Big Wheat and the Board of Trade of manipulating the wheat market to maximize profits at the expense of consumers. It also bashed former New York governor and current U.S. Senator David Bennett Hill, who is seeking the Democratic nomination for President of the United States, accusing him basically of being a protege of Bostweed and using lots of vitriolic language to make its point par for the course in period New York politics. On the front page of the Los Angeles Herald, an article that suggested a new political party might soon be formed by prohibitionists. The cause was championed by a woman named Frances Willard, president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She was a suffragist who was leading the charge for, quote-unquote, woman suffrage and the suppression of the liquor traffic. Okay, first up, an absolutely spectacular crime, which happened actually earlier in the week, early Sunday morning on February 21st. The central figure in this account is Oliver Curtis Perry. He was a former cattle herder and a really colorful outlaw, especially fascinating because he operated out of upstate New York, mostly, not even close to what was considered the Western frontier. Born in 1865, Perry leapt into the national spotlight when he robbed a train called the American Express Special on September 29, 1891, near Utica, New York. When an employee of the railroad was suspected of being involved in the heist, Perry wouldn't let him take the fall and wrote a letter to police, taking personal blame and revealing his location. But when Pinkerton detectives arrived, Perry managed to elude their capture. So keep in mind, Perry was well known to the American public, and what's more, found some sympathy amongst the population for his gallantry. It was New York's Buffalo Evening News that first broke the story on Monday, February 22nd, page 1. The article itself is rather long-winded, so what you are about to hear is an abbreviated version of it a combination of my own summary and select excerpts. Once again, Oliver Curtis Perry set his sights on an American Express train, number 31, which left Syracuse that morning, before daylight, carrying valuable goods and property. One of the cars was known as the Money Car. It was used by the United States Treasury to transport money between New York and cities in the West. Eight storage cars in total comprised the train, with one day coach in the very rear that accommodated the train's regular day crew, and of course the engine in the front. The money car was just in front of the day coach, at the back of the train. About 30 minutes after departing Syracuse, an American Express messenger named Daniel McInerney, who was assigned evidently to protect the money car alone, a bit of a controversy because all of the other cars that day 
had two messengers protecting each. So McInerney was startled by the sound of breaking glass. Before he could figure out where the sound came from, a man wearing a red hood swung himself through the window and pointed his revolver at him. McInerney drew his pistol and they fired, but McInerney missed his target. The red-hooded man didn't and fired three times. Once through the messenger's left hand, put one bullet into his leg, and the third just grazing his forehead. The robber then knocked the guard down with the butt of his pistol and began rummaging through packages in the car. In the meantime, the conductor, Emil Lass, who was in the coach car behind, sensed something was wrong and, along with a brakeman, went to the platform between the two cars to investigate. He knocked on the money car door, and when no one answered, he peered through a hole where the bell rope ran through, and he saw a strange hooded man in the car with no sign of McInerney. There's something wrong in there, he told the brakeman, and they signaled up to the engine to slow down. They both leaned on one side of the platform, just as the hooded man, who had felt the train slowing down, opened the door, shouting, God damn you, shove her ahead. When he saw the conductor and brakeman hanging off the side, he fired at them, and they both dove into the coach, locking the door behind them. As the train slowly chugged through the Port Byron train station, the conductor set the train brakes to stop and jumped off the train onto the depot platform and ran to the station's telegraph operator to wire for assistance. As the train ground to a halt, McInerney opened the door of the money car slightly, calling out that he was wounded and all alone inside. Conductor Lass decided that as the car had slowed, the robber had probably jumped off the train to escape. So he directed a messenger from another one of the cars to the money car to tend to McInerney's wounds until they reached the town of Lyons. Conductor Lass reboarded the coach car and the train moved forward, traveling the last 20 miles or so to the Lyons train depot. McInerney was removed from the money car and taken to a doctor, and then the train backed up to take some water. So, meanwhile, Conductor Lass stood on the depot platform with members of the crew, explaining to the station agent what had happened and how he believed the hooded man had jumped off the train prior to Port Byron. The station agent interrupted him and said he had just witnessed a man only moments earlier, hop off the train while it was standing at the depot. The conductor, surprised, turned to scan the area and immediately saw a man leaning coolly and carelessly, according to the paper, against the depot building, staring right at him. Conductor last turned to the brakeman and remarked, didn't we see this man in Syracuse? The brakeman replied, Yes, that's him. That's your man, boys. Those words signaled the train crew to rush the man, <laughs> and they ran towards him. But before they could reach him, 
the, the man pulled out two revolvers and aimed them at the crew, stopping them in their tracks. Oh no, boys, he said. Keep easy and don't be in a hurry. The robber backed up, keeping the crowded bay with his weapons, and then he turned and ran across the tracks to the train, which was on track two, and began attempting to uncouple the engine from its cars. The robber couldn't do it, so he dashed over to track three, where there was a heavier coal train, and he tried uncoupling this one as well, all the time waving his pistol in the direction of these stunned onlookers, until he finally succeeded in getting it disconnected. He then jumped into the heavy engine, thrust his guns into the faces of the engineer and fireman, and hissed, You goddamn son of a bitch! If you prefer your lives to this engine, hide. Damn you, hide. They hid, and the robber pulled the throttle wide open and sailed away, making sure to blow the whistle when he approached the crossings to warn possible innocents to his approach. A very considerate outlaw, if nothing else. Conductor Lass ordered his crew to uncouple the engine from the rest of his train, and taking with him a double-barreled shotgun-wielding switchman, he roared his engine forward and began pursuit of the coal train on the parallel track. His engine was lighter than the coal train's engine, and he soon began to catch up. Well, the outlaw, seeing his dilemma and the light of his pursuer's engine getting steadily closer, he made a split decision. He braked the engine, and when it came to a complete stop, put it in reverse and began driving backwards to meet his pursuers. The conductor and the switchman saw what was happening and ducked in the cab as the man and his car flew past them, firing into their cab as he did so. The switchman stood up and returned fire. He discharged one of the barrels of his shotgun at the robber's passing engine, but none of the bullets did any damage from either of the men. Now the conductor stopped his own engine, threw his engine into reverse, and now both trains were moving down the tracks in chase again, but the wrong way. The switchman fired his final charge, and then he and the conductor conferred briefly, finally making the decision that that if they were able to catch up with the Desperado, they were out of bullets. So they backed their way to Lyons. As for the robber, of course, who was none other than Oliver Curtis Perry, he took his engine back towards Lyon as well, but stopped it at some point, out of sight of the other engine, and hightailed it into farmland to attempt an escape. So while this was going on, three Rochester detectives under the command of Chief Hayden, who were notified of the trouble, were quickly on their way to the area to search for the man who had caused all of it. They found a local farmer and questioned him. He told them the outlaw had come to his house, telling him that he was a Pinkerton detective and demanding a horse. The suspicious farmer refused, so the man drew his weapon and commandeered a horse by force. So the detectives, who were following his trail, 
borrowed horses themselves, it doesn't say how, and made their way to a second farmer named Mr. Beals, who had encountered the same man, who they don't know was Oliver Perry at this point. And Perry had told him the same story, but this time he had demanded a horse and buggy because he was tired of riding horseback. And when Mr. Beals had refused to give him what he wanted, the outlaw fired two shots so close to Mr. Beals' head that his face was blackened with powder. Again, the detectives made pursuit, this time tracing the robber 10 miles out to a place called Benton's Swamp. Remember, it's winter and there is snow on the ground and the robber had left his horse and rig on the side of the road because he couldn't push through the snow any longer. So he fled by foot into a nearby woods and the detectives closed in and soon had him surrounded. So the following is a first-hand account of the rest of the story told by Chief Hayden, reported on by the Buffalo Evening News on Thursday, February 25th. It was a little before noon when the party saw the fellow secreted behind a stone wall. He called out to Deputy Collins, who accompanied us, that he was unarmed and put his revolver on the wall and told him that if he wanted to speak with him, to come up. The deputy accordingly walked up to the wall and reaching over secured his man who offered no resistance whatever. We drove over to Lockville and had dinner. While there I had quite a talk with the prisoner. I told him that he had been doing a good deal of shooting and he replied that he guessed he had not hurt anyone. I informed him as to the condition of the express messenger and he seemed to be pleased to learn that he was injured no worse, saying that McInerney had fought for all he was worth and had shown lots of sand. He told me that he had opened several packages but did not find what he wanted, as it was money that he was looking for. In the course of our conversation, I casually said, Perry, you must be very tired. What's that? he inquired, suddenly facing me. I said you must be very tired. Yes, but what was it you called me? I called you Perry. That's your name, isn't it? No, sir, he replied. My name is Cross, William Cross, and I came from New Mexico. I asked Cross or Perry, or whatever he may prove to be, how long he had been in Syracuse, and he told me that he had been there three or four days, but would not say where he had stopped. He also said to me while talking that it was not his intention to kill the messenger, but only to maim him so that he could not make resistance. After we had our dinner, we drove to Lyons, and the prisoner was lodged in the Wayne County Jail at that place. He is five feet six or seven inches in height, rather slight in build, and will not weigh over 140 pounds. He wears a short brown beard was dressed in a suit of dark clothes and had a black derby hat. He is apparently about 25 years of age. He was armed to the teeth. He had three revolvers, one of them a very heavy one, and had on a belt filled with cartridges. Detective O'Neill of the New York Central Railroad and Detective Ennis of Syracuse 
visited Lyons last night and identified the robber as Perry, who was wanted for the express robbery at Utica, committed last September. There is a reward of $1,000 offered for his capture by the American Express Company. So the St. Joseph Weekly Gazette in Missouri reported background information on Oliver Curtis Perry. I'm assuming that this is a, a wire story uh, that multiple papers uh, carried. But they put it on the front page of their paper the same day. And it's a, an interesting story that reveals some of the sordid details of Perry's criminal life. And Messenger McInerney, by the way, was recovering nicely from his leg wound. Here is an excerpt from that article. Superintendent Banks of the New York branch of Pinkerton's Detective Agency says that Oliver Curtis Perry is the wickedest and nerviest man that ever stood in two boots. That he absolutely does not know what fear is. Yet he is polite and effeminate in manner and is nervous and uneasy in behavior. His counterpart, according to men who know all about criminals, is not to be found among the criminal classes in the United States. As an aside, here is some slightly different descriptive information about him, which goes to show that, that papers don't get these things right initially. He is 26 years of age, 5 feet 6 or 7 inches in height, of slight build, weighing about 130 pounds, has dark brown hair, and wore until recently a small, sandy mustache. Has brown eyes, a high white forehead with wrinkles between the eyes, that gives his face a troubled and thoughtful expression. Thin lips, a rather long nose, slim white hands with knuckles enlarged by hard work. He has a girlish voice. He dresses in dark clothes, invariably wears gloves, and is noticeably particular about keeping his hands clean. Perry was born in Amsterdam, New York, and got into jail when he was 14 years old for burglary. He lied and stole and fought in the reformatory until the officials decided that he was incorrigible, and then he was sent to the penitentiary at Rochester for a term. He was the very worst man that was ever confined in that penitentiary. That's a bit of hyperbole there, isn't it? He always had a scheme on foot for escaping. He never would do any work. He was always ugly to the keepers, and a good deal of the time he spent in dark cells and undergoing other modes of punishment that all proved ineffective. When he was released, he started west, landing finally in Minnesota. He had an uncle out there who kept a store, and the young man had been in town but a few weeks when he broke into the store and stole everything that he could lay his hands on. He was caught and sentenced to the state prison at Stillwater for three years. He became a cowboy and was shot in the wrist. His wound enabled him to claim admission to the Alms House at Miles City, Montana. He got into a row with another inmate and picking up a stone, smashed the man's head. The man died the next day. Perry was arrested for the murder 
and was tried but was acquitted. He professes religion and will try to impose on ministers and class leaders of churches, particularly Presbyterians, the Pinkerton Circular says. Perry's preference for Presbyterians is due to the fact that he was once taught in a Presbyterian Sunday school. His gentle manner and look of apparent sincerity, together with the carelessness of his dress, enabled him to quote-unquote work religious people. He was once a brakeman and wrote to railroad officials that it hurt his conscience to work on Sunday. He got his Sundays off in that way. He robbed a train early in the morning of September 30th last. It was the same train, number 31, and the same car that he attempted to rob on Sunday morning last. Perry got by this robbery $5,000 cash and a lot of jewelry. The detectives traced the crime home to the man, but they couldn't trace the man. It was said today that Perry had, since the robbery, traveled all over the country, eluding his pursuers just in the nick of time. As an ex-convict, Perry is liable, upon a conviction for robbery in the first degree, to 40 years imprisonment, which term, unless he changes his ways, is not likely to be shortened for good behavior. There will be more about Oliver Curtis Perry in future episodes of Aghast at the Past. So I wanted to mention the Tina Davis case briefly. There is no new news. Trefethen and Smith continue to languish in jail as of February 25th. Preparations continue to be made to arraign the men for Tina Davis's murder. However, Lily Johnson appeared in court and, and testified on her own behalf in the Frida Ward murder case on Thursday, February 25th. She had difficulty keeping her composure. So distraught she was over finding herself in these unfortunate circumstances. Here's an excerpt from a National Wire story. The one I am reading from is on page one of the Rock Island Argus. An odor of blood. The details of Frida Ward's murder retold. Miss Lily Johnson in court before a stern judge whose record for convictions is a portentous one. The unfortunate prisoner collapses after giving her horrible testimony, description of the tragic event and how the murderess kissed her hand wet with her victim's gore. Memphis, February 25th. There was an odor of warm blood perceptible in the criminal courtroom yesterday, so horrible were the details of the Ward-Mitchell tragedy as told by various witnesses, among whom was Lily Johnson, who testified in her own behalf. When Miss Johnson told how Alice Mitchell kissed her own bloody hands, screaming that it was Frida's blood, a woman fainted and was quickly carried out. Before Miss Johnson took the stand, she fainted in the anteroom while in consultation with her lawyers. And when she had finished her story and had undergone a severe cross-examination at the hands of the iron-hearted Attorney General, she was almost bodily carried to her seat 
Prominent physicians from this and other cities were present, and hundreds of people of all grades were interested observers. The present issue is Miss Johnson's application for bail under the writ of habeas corpus, and it is the opinion of those who followed the testimony that she has not many points in her favor. A young, innocent-looking, baby-faced girl weeping on the witness stand who would ordinarily be productive of sympathy on the part of a trial judge, fails in this case, for Judge DuBose has all the severity of the English Jeffrey, and his regard for human life is not so very high, as will be shown by the long list of convictions at his bar. Miss Johnson's attorney made a desperate fight to show that she knew nothing of Alice Mitchell's intentions. Miss Christina Purnell, companion of the ward girls, was the first witness called, but she not being present, the court issued an attachment for her, and Mr. Lyles was put on the stand. He saw the last part of the tragedy and heard someone shout murder, and then he saw Alice Mitchell come up the hill and heard a woman, Miss Johnson, in the buggy shout, hurry up. He saw Alice Mitchell take the reins and dash away. Miss Purnell came in at this time and said she knew all the parties to the tragedy and told how the Johnson and Mitchell girls followed her and the Mrs. Ward in a buggy and how Alice ran down the hill, cut Frida's throat from ear to ear, and then cried out that she had done what she intended to do and cared not for death. A tragic, tragic story all the way around, which will continue on this show as more developments happen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Aghast at the Past. Until next time.